welcome to another episode of the Midwifery Wisdom Podcast. In this unique installment, co-host Augustine Colbrook talks with Texas midwife Melody Barnum. Brace yourself as they dive into the extraordinary story of a birth that Melody attended a year ago. One that goes beyond just the ordinary, featuring a precipitous shoulder dystocia that ended in a hospital transfer. Melody and Augustine meticulously talk through each layer of this birth story, from the details of the birth itself to the incredible charting by Melody and her team, and of course, the impact it had on Melody as a midwife. What sets this episode apart is Melody's incredible courage and transparency in sharing her own personal experience. Her willingness to open up allows all of us to gain invaluable insights and lessons. Get ready to be inspired and informed as we dive into this story. Welcome to the podcast, and I'm really grateful to be joined by Melody. And Melody, I just want to say thank you for being vulnerable with us. Today's topic is a big one. A lot of people struggle with this uh, subject before they've even encountered it. And so I just want to say thank you so much for being a part of the teaching and the mentoring and the coaching and the supporting of people in this space. For sure. I think it's important. Yeah. Well, before we jump into the case review, would you give us a little introduction? Who are you? Where are you? What are you all about? Why did you decide to do this? Sure. Um, I'm Melody Barnum. I began in birth work and learning in general, or birth learning at 17. And so over half my life, I've been doing some aspect of birth work. I've been a licensed midwife in Texas for um, nine years as of this month. And then um, we moved to Louisiana in 2020, and I've been licensed here since the end of 2020. I don't know how many births I've been to. I lost so many NARM numbers so many times. I have not kept track um, because I got upset and frustrated. (laughs) Now I'm in grad school to become a therapist because I want to work with providers on birth trauma and the perinatal community in general. So got one more client for this year and then I'm taking a break. That's amazing. Well, having a long and, uh, challenging and beautiful journey in midwifery. Um, you have seen trauma, I'm sure for yourself and others. For sure. And, um, is that part of what made you feel like talking about this and the trauma that you experienced would be helpful for others? I think so. I, I've learned how helpful it is to also talk about those things, like what's hard so that we can first of all, just for ourselves to process, but also in community to understand that I may look like the most experienced person in the room doing the most chill thing at the moment, but there's still like things running through my head. I'm still concerned about things. I don't know of any at least healthy provider that hits a point where they just feel so perfectly proficient that there's no what ifs or is this one going to go the way that I want it to. And so I think it's helpful to normalize that. And yeah, I love, and I love what you said, healthy provider, because there are some very unhealthy 
the providers of like, I've got this, I know this, I understand. It's like, oh, we never actually arrive in this profession. It's a constant uh, juggling act. And uh, I love that you said that. Well, uh, again, thank you for being willing to share not only your chart, but also your videos that were taken of you uh, during a, what seems like precipitous um, mm. shoulder dystocia, first time home birther that ended in uh, a resuscitation and a transport. And that is kind of like almost everyone's fears altogether. It seems like she didn't hemorrhage. So maybe you got no got out of one scenario, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> avoided that one. but that's quite a combination, quite a combination of things. And so it, so that we can get right to talking about the case and processing in reviewing your chart notes, I made some notes. And so I would like the succinct case back to you okay. um, that I got from the chart. And then we'll have a conversation about that. And then that way the viewers can be up to date on the occurrence before we start chatting about it. Is that okay with you? Sounds good. Okay. Awesome. So this was a G3P2, 28-year-old gravid woman um, who presented at 40 weeks and four days in active labor. And the first uh, assessment was at 9.59 p.m. There was no significant history except anxiety that she was, and she was taking Lexapro and Unisom. Um, and baby number two was preterm and low birth weight after being induced at 37 weeks for growth restriction. Uh, this baby obviously was at term. So uh, at around 10 p.m., she was admitted and heart tones were 130s. At 10.13, SROM with MEC was noted. At 10.25, fetal heart tones, when they were rechecked, were 78 Position change was recommended and it brought the heart tones into the 80s and an exam was performed and they were found to be complete and encouraged to push. Um, scalp stem produced uh, an effective acceleration to 100. Uh, at 1027, 911 was called. At 20, 1028, baby was visible. At 1030, the head with three maneuvers attempted in 30 seconds with advanced maternal effort. Baby was born unresponsive. Resuscitative efforts began immediately. The heart tone was noted to be 130. Uh, baby weighed 8.2, so no low birth weight. At 10.31, APGAR of 1 was 2, and 8 milliliters of fluid was deleted. At 10.35, the 5-minute APGAR was 6, and the EMS arrived. And at 10.40, the 10-minute APGAR was seven, and there was a move to the ambulance that was slow. At 10.46, the cord was cut. At 10.47, EMS depart with the baby, and they arrived at the hospital at 11.02. The baby was admitted to the NICU. At 24 hours later, the baby was weaned off oxygen and went home shortly later. And one year later now, you have noted that this family has said that there are some delays in motor function. Is that correct? Possibly. It's one of those like delays beyond the perfectly 
normal. You know, like when you look at those charts and they say they should be exactly crawling and sitting at these milestones, it's a little bit delayed. So not significant delays, but it's one of, yeah, it's a what if in your brain. <laughs> First of all, I want to say, um, I read your chart and I know you had a group practice at the time and there were other people charting as well, but I have to say it was one of the best charts I've ever reviewed. And I really want to give you and your colleagues that feedback. Thank so you. congratulations. Well I done. Will say I had a student charting um, at the time, but as soon as I got home that night, I sat down at my kitchen table with the chart and I had done your charting course not too long before. And I was like, okay. And I had two students at the birth, one that's like a graduate, like waiting on exam, not really still a student in my brain. And so when I left with EMS, she told the other student that I had worked with less, she said, and now, and the other student said, we clean up. And Shay said, no, we sit down and we write down everything that happened. She's like, that's what Melody always says. And so Wonderful. that helped so much because then I had not only the chart, but I had their narrative and my pieces of information as the most experienced provider in the room to go back and Brilliant. make sure I had all the details in there. So Brilliant. It was factual. It was justified. It was clear. Um, every action had the explanation for why it had been done or not done. Um, it was very defensive. So I just wanted to give you that feedback. Congratulations. Uh, I read through the entire chart, including the initial prenatal all the way to the discharge postpartum. And I will say that like your team is on the ball. So well done. Congratulations. This is extraordinary. Um, so well done. So that was the first thing. The second thing is uh, I wanted to talk about was I reviewed the video that was taken of you. And I wonder if that is confronting. There's a lot of conversation in the midwifery community these days about video. Um, many hospitals make it you know, illegal to videotape providers. This is one of those reasons why, right? Because it's scary to be... Um, to be recorded for all posterity and for all judgment. And for, as you said, Dr. Amy on the internet to come pick you apart. Like it's very intense. Do you know who was recording you? How did you get those? So films? Um, how do you feel about that? I did not know it was being recorded in the moment, which is helpful because then I didn't have that in my mind as I'm doing everything. Um, there's some confusion about who recorded it. Um, it was the family of the birthing person of her, um, that for sure. Um, one person said they were recording it, but she's in it. So I know she didn't record all of it. So, um, but I'm friends with the family and stuff too. So that's how I got the video. Um, initially when I found out my heart was like in my chest or in my throat, like, oh no, there's recording of that. Not because I thought there was anything that was managed poorly, but because anytime you nitpick an emergency, you'll find something you can call out as a problem or whatever. Um, and so, but once I took a minute and watched it, I was fascinated to watch myself in an emergency because I had never seen a video of me handling something like that. And so to see 
the calm exterior I wanted to have was there. And all the thoughts in my brain were just leading to effective management and not like in your brain, you wonder how chaotic you look on the outside when you have so many pieces of information that you're managing that ADHD superpower, but also. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. But it's, it's very, um, it's unmasking, right? It's very disarming to know that you're being watched in the midst of what for many would be chaos or, or intensity or overwhelm or what have you. Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I thought you and your team um, did uh, very well. And uh, what we thought we would do is watch them together and uh, then sort of talk about the scenario piece by piece. Are you okay with that? Mm -hmm. A note for listeners, for privacy reasons, the video will not be included in the YouTube version of this episode. However, you will hear the audio from the video and we'll see Melody and Augustine react while watching the video. So let's see the first of, I believe, seven short clips that we're taking of you. Okay. Okay. No, Brent. Yeah. <laughs> okay, give it a push. Ow! You're doing so good. His head's out. His head's out. Keep pushing, Brent. You're doing so good. Okay, get a foot up. Um, yeah. <laughs> There you go. There's our first position change. And we've just switched from senior student to senior midway. And you're going after one of the shoulders. Mm -hmm. Push, honey, down into your butt. All the way into your butt, Brittany. Okay. So um, tell me about what was going through Uh, your mind. I remember going in and thinking that there was space. Like thinking... Um, I guess that's the first thing that comes into my head when I'm having to help a baby, like what's up with the pelvis and do I feel like there's really adequate space and this is something else kind of hanging the baby up. Um, my hindsight is, I think that because he had been bradycardic for so long, he wasn't as much of an active participant. So when I went in, I remember thinking there's room, there's room. I just have to figure out where to get him to wiggle so that I can get him out. So at that point, that's kind of what I was thinking was there's, there's, there's room here. We just have to navigate it. Absolutely. I love that reflection about that. Your hand, like if you can fit your hand in alongside the baby's shoulder, you're right. There is space. Um, so even if the anterior shoulder is impacted on the pubic bone, if we have space in the back, we're just going to move them towards the back, which is ultimately what you did. And I, I love that. And I just want to direct folks to a resource about this topic. We have a very extensive uh, blog post about shoulder dystocia on the website, midwifrywisdom.com. And there I presented this theory that I think there are three types of dystocia. The first type is the type that you're describing which is a baby who has lost reserves, i.e. lost tone, and is no longer muscling their way out and actively rotating through the pelvis. They are passengers at that point. They're not active participants. And that's why we sometimes hear about one minute dystocias with three days on cooling in challenge is because they actually entered the pelvis already compressed or de-stressed, compensated. And there's no actual um, 
impactment, they're just not actively being born. Does that fit what you felt? Yes. Yeah. And I remember. And then the second type of dystocia is a baby who's actually, go ahead, go ahead. We're, we're overwrapped. Okay. Say it again. Say it I again. remember um, at the conference last year doing the shoulder dystocia room and Wendy talking about, because um, someone asked the question, like, how long is too long in a dystocia? And she said, well, how is the baby when the dystocia began? And so that was also going through my mind in this moment, like, okay, we were not good when we began this. We don't have as much time as a baby who was 140 before now they're stuck. But at the same time, we have a baby that's probably not doing their part and a pelvis that's easy to navigate if we just make it. So kind of like teasing out that what is our hang up here? And what is our level of- That's brilliant thought process. Brilliant thought process. And I agree with Wendy Kleckner, the amazing Wendy Kleckner out of Arizona. And um, yeah, I, I believe this as well. So the second type of dystocia is a baby who is not compromised, but is truly stuck. And this is where sometimes you hear about eight minute dystocias and puff of air and they were fine because they actually didn't enter the pelvis compromised. They were literally just wedged and we had to do all the things to unwedge them, but then they're, they recover very quickly because they weren't in distress. And then the third type of dystocia is the, oh shit kind of birth where both of them are happening. They are compromised and they're super stuck. And obviously we want to do everything we can to avoid those types of births. Uh, but you can read a lot more about this on the website. Okay. So let's watch the next clip as you progress through the different steps. And, um, for this next one, I'm going to ask for you to describe what you're doing. Uh, the okay. first step you had was you had her put her leg up on the bed and then you felt to see if there was room and whether the shoulders were going to rotate. And then we're going to move on to this next step. What are you doing here? You're doing such a good job. Switching hands, and I was reaching to see which hand I could best get to that. I need that space you had earlier. Whatever leg you can. There you go. There you go. He's coming out. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, you've moved the posterior shoulder to visible. So good. Right. Yeah. That baby is still. I'm trying to make sure I'm splinting the shoulder and not going in the armpit. He's coming. Yeah. Okay. You're working. You're doing it. Oh, mom. Mom's working so hard. And now baby's coming. And we have a super floppy. Don't worry about the nuchal cord. Super floppy head. Um, you so you delivered the baby with mom basically standing. And um and you and your student are right there with the baby behind and you can tell they need help right now. So you did not hand that baby to mom. You went right to resuscitating on the floor. And I also love this. And so I really want to commend you on this next step because um, so many midwives are so hyper-focused on doing a gentle birth, a physiologic birth, keeping moms and baby together. And this is because of the horrific things that are done in the hospital. And so there's a good reason why everyone's hyper-focused on that. But we need to have a fail-safe threshold where we stop with the normal physiologic birth when it's not normal. And so I loved seeing this. I When I review um, poor outcome uh, births and labors and, and 
videos, I oftentimes see that like immediate putting the baby on the mom and then being like, like, oh, they're floppy and not moving. Okay, now I have to take it back. And that is a really challenging process. In fact, I would argue that that's pretty traumatic. How do you feel? I think it really can be. I think also I'm one that, especially when it's hard, the birth's been either precipitous or really hard on mom letting mom come into herself before she takes the baby. Not like I'm withholding the baby, but I will hold the baby out without like shoving it towards mom, even when baby's pink and crying and perfect and just wait. Because I've had more than once where a mom looks at me and goes, what the F just happened? And it's like, yes, take a breath. You just had your baby, like come into yourself. And then when you're ready, baby's ready. Like, so a in a birth like this, where the moms had to work so hard, there's an element of mom that's not ready to hold baby either often. Um, and you can toss yeah. the baby from the mom, but everybody- But don't of- you think it's traumatic if we put if we put a baby there and then we have to take them away, don't you? Yeah. Think that's traumatic. I think that can be too, yeah. Just going back and forth instead of the progression to mom, yeah. And when you see that something's wrong, just go right to the solution. Yeah. One thing I liked about how we handled the birth that it's hard to tell in the clips is in the moment, as I could, I was narrating to my team. So there was, and I thought I heard it in a clip at one point, but I didn't hear it when I rewatched it the other day. You hear me say, okay, I'm going for the arm and put my hand in further. So I was telling them so they could, my hope was that the student could then be charting all of that. Um, I don't know if that got done or not. It was a student that I hadn't worked with as much and we hadn't run through these scenarios, but um, at least everybody in the room knew what was happening. That's beautiful. Yeah, informing the, the team, but also the family members, like the one who's watching. They're like, okay, she's doing everything she can. That's a good feeling, even if they don't know what that means. Yeah. And in this case, we had the mom was a nurse and her family members in the room besides her husband were nurses. So it felt extra important to be, I could just pop out stats. Like as soon as I had the pulse ox on the baby during resuscitation, I could just pop out 140.99 and they knew what that meant. And that gave them comfort too, um, because they knew all these stats. I got my baby and pelvis too. That's that's the perfect time. So walk us through what you were doing. Yeah. When he came out, I need a, like something to suspend it. But he did, first of all, his head went purple. So I knew that we were kind of stuck. And he didn't like keep coming at all um, with good effort. So that's when I was going in here and trying to figure out just where the space was and what I could kind of get to um, without with trying to avoid anything with the armpits so that you're not messing up the brachial plexus. So that gets, it feels like a good spot for leverage, but that's not, you're more likely to cause damage. So then just reaching, and I was reaching for his arm to try to get his elbow and extract that arm, but in just pulling on it a little bit, it got the shoulder dislodged enough so that, or not dislodged, but pulled out far enough that I was able to then just 
But this was the posterior, right? So the oh, pelvis wait, yeah. she for was us like for a quick second, because you were working yeah. on the posterior arm first. Add or backwards. Yeah. yeah, I was going for the posterior yeah. arm. So you, yeah, so you were working on. Because she was. Yeah, but the first maneuver you did was to see if the shoulder would rotate on the anterior side, right? Yes. Yeah, Just that's the first maneuver. It like that. And it wasn't moving at all. Uh-huh. Well, mm -hmm. it moved, but it wasn't descending. I could mm -hmm. I could like push it over, but it wasn't leading to more descent. So I was gonna go to get this arm to get him to pull down more like from that. Um, but as I reached, I think I got about to the elbow to start to cause the arm to bend. And then it just, between her efforts and my just messing with him, the shoulder came out. So then I moved back to more exterior efforts, just pushing on that scapula to try to complete that full rotation and get him out. Yeah. And that's another example of this first case of dystocia, this first type of dystocia. When you free one of the shoulders and the baby doesn't come flying out with that much maternal effort, that's the other confirmation that the baby is not working for this journey. The baby is depressed. They've lost resources. And we saw that on the video. So that was really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. You we ready to tackle? Too, but I don't think that the cord around the neck was uh, any piece of that. I don't think it impeded puzzle. the progress, but I think it could have definitely played a part in the depressed baby. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. There could have been some compression over a shoulder there against a bony mm -hmm. maternal pelvis and a bony baby's shoulder. And that could have been what led to the brandycardia. Well, are you ready to tackle the second part of this <laughs> and sure. watch the next video? Okay. Are you, are you feeling triggered? Are you doing okay? Should we do some deep breaths and somatic exercises? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are a badass baby catcher. I love your mug. Okay. Let's this is, do the this. The mom gave me this after the birth. So this is uh, my perfect that's your that's your trophy right there okay um alrighty so now we're gonna go to the resuscitation process and this is the first moment that he's out right uh it's within the first minute birthday come on buddy hi baby we've got some drying some stimulating he's getting some breaths uh there's a stethoscope okay so this is a two minutes old and the ems has just walked in the door maybe mm -hmm. he's four minutes old something like that and he's getting yeah. an apgar of five or six right here i think that's what's happening yeah Somebody's listening to his heart. The pulse ox is already hooked up. Oh, and that is the EMS. Surprised that baby's already here. The EMS was surprised about a lot. We had a bad dispatcher. Oxygenation's good. Uh -huh. So we still have lack of tone and lack of respiratory effort. Heart rate is 140s. Uh, we can see on the pulse ox and the baby is well oxygenated 98 99 mm -hmm. lots of of head stimulation but still not actively moving and yes. pretty pretty good color though so that's why he's come up into that five or six apgar but he is not really responsive yeah okay let's say, do this okay go ahead when we got to the hospital and the uh doctor asked me what APGARs were, I rated them lower. And when I huh. 
looked back and I was like, no, he was pink because he was so floppy and lacked so much respiratory effort. I was like, he was only a two or three. I couldn't imagine that. And then when I looked back, I was like, oh, he's pink as can be. He just, it was those two factors, tone and respiratory effort that he never- grimace. He had no grimace, yeah. you know? So, so five is, is okay. You know, I think uh, an occasional right. gasp here and there in pretty good color and pretty good heart rate. Um, you know, I think five is appropriate that you gave. And then right around five minutes, he got a six, which is what we're about to watch now. And, um, we're starting this video with eyes open. Yes. Um, why do you want all these people at your party? That's great. Okay. Still not responsive. Yeah. Yeah. He's not moving. And he's not grimacing, even though you're shoving. Yeah. Oh, there's a first cry. Oh, there's a first little grimace. He gave a little cry I think, when I messed with when I sucked yeah. in. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, baby. Yeah. But he is real depressed. Like he is not in his body. Yeah. Real shell shocked. Yeah. I would encourage you to go back. So we're working on helping mom get out of her very uncomfortable standing birth position. Baby's pulse ox is great. Baby's heart rate is great. EMS is standing there. We're still stimulating and drying. And I'll say I was very impressed with EMS. They came in and they watched and I told them when they walked in, I said, I'm the midwife, we're doing a resuscitation. And then they stayed present, but out of the way until I called it for them to take over. For, for them to yeah. run for our money. To transport. Yeah. yeah. I so we're still doing more suctioning. And at this point, you've been doing quite a bit of bulb suctioning, probably because it was just handy, right? I had already done the, I don't know at which point in this exactly I did the delete in relation to the video. I had the student hand me the delete and I did it, but that was not videoed. Um, yeah, that was a little after one minute, I guess. So two minutes or something like that. Yeah. So, but eight mLs is really significant. There was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder too, how much of that is common when the baby is more passive in birth because you know often we see when the head comes out and the next contraction the lungs are squeezed and they expel they yeah. expel so much and he yeah. didn't do that and I'm wondering how much of that is impacted by him being already bradycardic I don't know yeah and he had some mech in the water uh did your yes. receiving um doc did they have anything to say about um mass do you think he had any kind of a mass situation um they didn't say a lot they were very they asked me a lot of questions and were very receptive and open um but they didn't say a lot of their things they overall seem to think I think because they see so much more in the hospital than we do. They're like, well, sometimes babies just need some help. They were very, uh -huh. Uh -huh. they didn't, I didn't feel dismissed, but they weren't over the top concerned at the same time. Uh-huh. 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 Okay. So, okay. So he's getting a little blow by right now. Um, mm -hmm. And did you do that out of reflex or did you do that because of the pulse ox? Was that a recommendation from the EMS? Uh, What's EMS didn't say much of anything. Um, 
once he began some respiratory effort on his own, we were trying to see. So I'm listening to his lungs here. And then the student is giving blow by um, just to see how much F, how much air he was moving on his own. We did still have the pulse ox on. And with that, he maintained heart rate and good O2. So um, mm -hmm. it was in my mind that at that point, I know the person that teaches us NRP suggests um, switching to CPAP. I wasn't confident where I was sitting in the room. This was a room we hadn't used before and stuff. I wasn't confident that I could talk the student I hadn't worked with as much into bringing me all of the equipment in a timely manner. And um, I don't have an air tank. I just have oxygen, which you also right. can have concerns of uh, damage, brain damage to the baby using straight O2 for very long. So right. it was, to me, it was kind of a juggle. Can I talk her through getting all of that? And is it truly advantageous to switch to CPAP or in my context is CPAP not a good resource? Um, and he can, are you transporting? So would that all be moot anyway? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah they were already in the room. So yeah. I knew I could get him to a better source of CPAP and his O2 and heart rate were stable with. Okay. So we okay. kept doing stimulation, but ultimately even in the ambulance, um, I had him in the ambulance and I just continued providing blow by and watched him on the because it kept his sats up and because you were transporting. And then when you got to the hospital, they kept him on oxygen for another 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, presumably because it kept his stats up. Yeah, okay, great. So we've got a much better tone now, not a lot of movement. We have definite respiratory effort. You're getting ready to transport now. And I think you're handing off to an EMS or a paramedic, is that right? Yes, the paramedic at this point was like really, I could tell, wanted her hands on my baby. Hi. Oh, hi. Hi. Yeah, when you get that pink baby that starts to cry and move, it can be so relieving to let someone else take over because you're not Yeah, yeah, that's that's really fun. I'm ready to go. Uh huh. No, I'm going. Yeah. And so they're, they're charming. Obviously, the are beginning to make notes. They're asking for data. And we have a baby who looks a little shocked. <laughs> yeah. Our little guy. Still not a ton of grimace. Uh, still not a ton of reaction to what's happening to him. I mean, he's pretty, pretty irritatingly bugged. And a baby who was fully in their body might start screaming at this point. And he was still just barely grimacing. Yes. Yep. Yeah. He started to cry and stuff, moving him around, but he didn't, it wouldn't continue with strong respiratory effort or anything like that. It would just be like letting us know he was angry. Yeah. So at about 10 minutes with an APGAR of seven, you decided to transfer and the EMS were happy to support you. Mm -hmm. um, and tell me, walk me through that decision. Like, what was the moment where you're like, we're going? Well, I can't remember. I knew it had been 10 minutes. I don't know if I asked the student or whatever, but when at 10 minutes, 
we still didn't have strong respiratory effort on our own. And we'd done all these things and nothing was shifting towards, he wasn't improving more and more. For about five minutes, we had been at basically stable, but not breathing effectively on our own. And so I was like, if, if these tricks haven't worked, it's time. If at 10 minutes, we're not a lusty, healthy baby, then we need more support. So, and then also probably what he had just been through was also weighing on your mind. This wasn't just a resuscitation. This was also a shoulder dystocia. Yeah. With, with a pretty tight nuchal cord and, um, yeah. And he might not be okay because he was taking so long to come around. I think that was a great call. How did the parents feel about it being nurses? Um, the mom, the mom was the nurse. She was totally on board. Usually I have more of a conversation with a parent before I make a call like that. In that case, I don't think I even really directly addressed that. I had addressed that we needed to call 911 before baby was born. And we had a conversation at that point. I mean, if she had said no, I think I would have still called, you know, there's a time where we have to use our clinical judgment, but we were all in agreement all along the way. And so, um, the mom was in full agreement, the dad too, but, um, they were, mm -hmm. they didn't question it at all. I think I used more that visual consent, like looking at mom, mm -hmm. we're still at this point, it's 10 minutes. I think we should go. Everybody in the room said yes. And so, um, mm -hmm. And no one was fighting you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, everybody was like, yeah, that's, that's the next step. So it was very okay. seamless. And yeah, the EMTs had no knowledge. The dispatcher was very poor on that one. Um, I told her what was happening and she said, ma'am, you're speaking too fast. And I understand they encounter that a lot, but I've also called 911 plenty of times in my career to know I was, she just was flustered. And so I repeated it more slowly using very basic terms. And she said, I don't even know how to spell these things. At which point I said, oh. is there an ambulance on the way? And she said, yes. I said, do they know that there's a woman in labor and a baby on the way? And she said, yes. I said, okay, I'm going to go back to the situation. And I hung up and they didn't call me back. But when they walked in, other people heard them say, oh, they're having a baby oh, this looks planned. So all of that communication, they came in knowing nothing. So I was very impressed that even with all of that, they stayed back. But I was glad that when they walked in, then I took the moment to say, I'm a midwife, the baby's born, we're doing a resuscitation. Um, and they could tell we were trained and knew what we were doing. And they were happy to stay back. Until yeah, I, I saw that. It's awesome. I just interviewed um, a midwife uh, partnership in California who is has created a curriculum that has made its way into the graduation requirements for the EMTs about how to assist at transports. And I was thinking, this group looks like they almost already took that class because they were so communicative and respectful and non-interfering. And they they honored you as the highest level of knowledge in the room. And that's what this this course they're creating in California is training. So well done. And yeah, for anyone like, that wants those- You're coming on the ambulance, yeah. right? And you're taking the baby. Which is, and I was like- Which yes. is great, yes. Because they don't get NRP training. And this is so, so important. So it's awesome. 
And for anyone who wants more opportunity to then take this curriculum they've created and train your own community of EMTs, they have created this whole process so that it can be replicated around the country. So that's very cool. You can check that out um, with, uh, again, on our podcast. And um, that is, uh, gosh, I don't even know what episode it is. Uh, but it's a good one. <laughs> it was just our last episode. So, so check that out. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, so when you got to the hospital, were you well-received by the NICU? Yes, this was, it was like, I didn't, I couldn't be fully in my body because of how pleasant and kind they were. As we arrived at the hospital, um, Multiple people walked out. And baby was breathing on their own, right? Baby was yes. breathing on their own. I just, baby okay. breathing on his own. I still have him doing blow by, um, still shallow and like minor respiratory effort, but enough that blow by was enough. Um, and so they greeted me and they said, okay, what's happening? And they took report from me first, along with the paramedics being there. Um, the NICU, it was a nurse practitioner. She took the baby directly from me and took him to the nursery. Um, and the other, the ER doctor kept taking report from me and we, we went ahead and took mom in, but there was confusion on if we were going to admit her or not based on what would be best for the mom, baby dyad and the hospital. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but the ER doctor gave me a hug and said, you're doing a wonderful job. You're such a great provider. And I was like, what is happening right now? Like, Wow. I, I settled in the hospital for basically not dismissing me and thinking I woke up this morning and decided I was going to do something crazy, you know, but yeah, right, right, right. And he yeah. was ending his shift, but he came up to the room where we were too. And again, reiterated how like congratulated me and told the mom she chose a good provider and that she made a good choice and had skilled people on like the depth that he went to in discussing that astounded me because it just really affirmed to the mom and to myself that we weren't crazy, you know, in this moment. Wow. I knew that, but you don't expect the hospital to agree. So. Wow. That's very exciting and refreshing. Uh, and obviously you were, you handled multiple emergencies in a, mo in a row. Um, yeah, great job. I hope that you're able to continue to stay connected to those uh, positive figures in the hospital because that's what we we want to see this integration, this bridge building. Well done. I did also, once everything was kind of settled, I also gave the information like we have not weighed him. We have not done um, vitamin K, eye drops. You know, I just told them what hadn't been done. And then she looked directly at right. them all and said, what of those things do you want and what do you not want? And wow, that was amazing to me too, to see that level of like, wow, desire to do it right with the mom. I mean, it wasn't full informed consent, but it was, do you already know what you want to do? Okay. And then that's up. called respectful care. I think, I mean, they were really, really respectful, which is amazing. You couldn't ask for anything better. Right. If you've ever checked out any of the shirts we sell over here at Midwifery Wisdom, you've likely noticed one of our more popular shirts that says, dance like no one is watching, 
chart like it's going to be read in court. So let's face it, practicing the art of midwifery in many parts of the world can leave you vulnerable to litigation. But here's the thing, you can protect yourself with the right kind of charting. Birth is unpredictable, we all know this. So don't let a simple charting mistake be the reason you lose your license or worse. This is where the Midwifery Wisdom course, Defensive Charting, enters into your life. You cannot afford to miss this course. You will learn about things like the history of charting, HIPAA, learn more about your intuition and how that plays into charting, and of course, how to defensively chart to defend yourself when and if you find yourself in a legal situation. So now take a breath, relax the stress you're holding in your shoulders, and sign up today to learn how to chart defensively, to defend yourself, and to be able to continue dancing like no one is watching. You had the best possible ambulance crew. You had informed, educated, and understanding parents, and sounds like extended family. You had a with it and supportive team. You had a receptive, kind, and even respectful hospital uh, reception. That's kind of the best case scenario. And yet, this is still really intense, right? Yes. Because we know that we're on the edge every day, every birth, Mm -hmm. every case, we could be, we could, we could be at that fetal demise that we all are terrified of. We could be at that life-changing outcome. And then like the secondary piece is that we as providers are always at risk because of this litigious society. So tell me about what you did for yourself immediately afterwards or in the weeks that followed to kind of get out from under this kind of a situation. Well, um, immediately after like leaving the hospital and all of that, that night, um, actually we discovered that the EMTs had taken my bag my midwife bag so then I was I had a new dilemma to figure out which was kind of a nice distraction in some ways like okay let's solve this new thing um but I also I think taking the time to just sit down and chart when I got home was actually a piece of self-care like that let's really get through all of this right now so it's not hanging over my head that I need to comb through the chart Um, I got home, I think I made a cup of tea or a cup of water and just sat down and went through it. So then when I did go to sleep, it was like all of that, you know, I've done what I can at this point and all of that. Um, the next day I met another midwife friend up at the facility to clean and look for the bag again and just make sure everything was all done. Um, and she's a good supportive resource for me to a good like really safe person that um hanging out is regulating so and we I think that's the day we each took our daughters up there and then we went and got ice cream around the corner like just kind of did some normal stuff 
Um, so that was helpful. I also texted my therapist the next day and said, I know we plan to not meet this week because of things, but I'm coming in on Tuesday. Um, which Tuesday was prenatal day. So I had to do a little bit of navigating that because I knew it was also important that I go in person and not do virtual uh, for myself. Um, so she was able to schedule around lunchtime and I was able to get someone else to cover one prenatal visit so I could make the commute back and forth. Um, Immediately after the shoulder dystocia occurred in the first couple of days, I felt basically fine and grounded. I was aware that it had been hard, but I was okay. I went to therapy the Tuesday after and processed and was doing well. And then that Friday, I was out of town for a grad school event. And I remember texting my therapist and saying, my anxiety is shot through the roof. I'm spiraling. I'm not okay. I can't handle mentally the fact that a week ago I was resuscitating a baby and today I'm all dressed up in this formal professional context. And she responded and said, you're struggling with impermanence. Each of those situations is impermanent, but when the trauma pops up, your brain can't comprehend that. Um, And I told her, but I scheduled this spiral for Tuesday and now it's Friday and it's inconvenient. And she said, because trauma can't be scheduled. So trauma responses can't be scheduled. And so even using the resources and the right things to process and integrate, we can't control how these things will manifest and pop up later. And we have to be ready to just ride that wave and feel through it and deal with it when it does pop up. Well, I, I love these examples of like both tackling the main important pieces that help you relax, but also doing the normal things with your daughter and enjoying life. But I want to say for those of you that are listening, she remembers what day of the week it was a year ago, which is the perfect example of how the trauma sticks. That's Mm -hmm. not something like you shouldn't remember what day prenatals, what day after the, like that should all fade from memory. But the fact that it doesn't is the very definition of trauma. When we experience an event that we do not find challenging, overwhelming, intense, it gets saved as memory after that first sleep. But when we experience a trauma, that's something that does not get saved as memory. It stays active in the amygdala and that re-experiencing it, revisiting it, going over and over and over it, that that kind of um, hyper-vigilant, hyper-awareness of that event is the very definition of trauma. And so even though you're in school to be a trauma therapist, even though you're obviously very well informed about the process, even though you did everything right and took good care of yourself here is the perfect example of how it didn't get laid down in memory the way ordinary events do. And so when I talk about trauma work, I like to talk about big T and little t traumas. Does that analogy make sense to you? Do you know those phrases? It does. And I have mixed feelings on it. So, but yes, go ahead. I like the idea, but I'm infamous yeah, t- for downplaying. Tell me, tell me more. Cause I, I, I'm infamous for downplaying my trauma. And so my therapist is like, 
get rid of those. They're all trauma. <laughs> so yeah, that's why. Yeah, in terms of it being um, a size that that is comparable or that that some get its attention and some doesn't. Yeah, I don't like that. But I like it in terms of thinking um, a big trauma is like the one off event, like being in war, right? Yes. Being in a battle, being, being assaulted, right? These, what we call big T trash, anyone, it would be considered a traumatic event. I think little T traumas are really important as well. And I think this is where we really need to take stock of our little t traumas and realize that they add up and that cumulative trauma is what leads to what's called cptsd mm -hmm. complex post-traumatic stress disorder and i don't like disorder because we're not disordered it's actually dysregulation or response i like response traumatic stress response mm -hmm. right and so you can have a complex post-traumatic stress response when you have multiple little T traumas repeated over and over. And I think this is the very definition of all of healthcare, but especially midwifery, because we are so marginalized and delegitimized within the larger healthcare system. And I wonder while you're in school to do exactly this, what you think about that? I agree. And in this case, so many of the pieces went in the best way to calm some of those things. I had good trust with the family, which you always want, but you don't always have with clients and stuff. Um, good communication afterwards, like they didn't ghost me. I didn't ghost them. We were able to stay, you know, doing postpartum visits and care. Um, and the EMT and hospital reception was positive. You know, sometimes you walk in and you see that person that's not, and you're like, oh goodness, they're going to be the one that files the complaint and says something totally random. Yeah. Um, the biggest piece of like that kind of liability in my brain in the situation was that there was video, but I also trusted the family when I asked that it not be publicly shared, um, that it wouldn't be. So, um, and I had a good supportive team. Like there were so many protective factors, but you still do have that a little bit of that in your mind of like, yeah, but you don't know, you know, and you know, if this goes somewhere yeah. first of all in louisiana we're licensed under the medical board so who reviews these cases is physicians and all that already have a bias against out-of-hospital birth you know well, that what's me handing my chart to them versus to you is different like i have relationship and trust in a fellow midwife looking at a chart versus handing it to random physicians and stuff that even the most defensively written chart, there's going to be things that they could pick out and ask just because of their yeah. bias even. And so you have all yeah. of those layers of questions in your mind. Um, yep. Which is actually all of those pieces is part of why I'm becoming a therapist too, is knowing I've had wonderful therapists that I can discuss these things with, but I have to go in and be like, Hey, so background, these are the five things weighing on my mind in this situation that aren't just the, is the mom cool? Okay. Is the baby? Okay. These are the outside pressures. And it would be a lot easier in one of those situations to go to a therapist that gets all of that. And when you say APGAR of two, 
gets the same sinking feeling and can reflect that without the context having to be given. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm, mm, yeah. Or even like knows what midwifery is, right? So many of us are like, okay, therapy, check. Need to go to therapy. Okay, go to therapy and have to spend the first 17 sessions explaining who I am and what I do. That is a deterrent to going to therapy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you could go to a therapist and be like, I'm a nurse and every therapist would be like, got it. <laughs> but you go, I'm a midwife. And they're like, I didn't know those still existed. Right. <laughs> Thankfully, the two that I've had recently both were like, oh, that's amazing. And they didn't use midwives, but they had had high risk pregnancies. And they were like, if I hadn't, I would, or we need more. So they had the context of that, of what it meant, but not of all of the pressures. Um, right. So there's, yeah, but you still have, well, and even in all of that, I had questions afterwards, like, should I have pushed on the NICU staff to do like cooling treatment or like, when do you push those kinds of things? And when do you trust their knowledge? And in this case, I trusted and leaned on them, which can be I mean, I don't know, but I felt heard when I stated the condition we were in prior to pushing in the condition we were in at birth, they were listening to my staff yeah. and taking them in and like, oh, wow. So I yeah. didn't feel like I needed to be a part of their clinical decision-making. I could trust their expertise. Um, I've been, I've been on transports where I'm like, this woman hemorrhaged 1500 cc's and they're like, but she's stable. So she didn't. And because they don't trust me, in those kinds of cases, I'm getting more and more like, listen to me. We're not okay. This yeah. case, I felt yeah. heard and respected. So I stayed out of that. But then still later, you kind of question like, what is my role in advocating yeah. for my client in that case? And when do I just. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's so many levels to this, right? I mean, we could just basically keep keep going. Well, the last piece that I wanted to talk about um, before we close up this amazing case review podcast, and thank you so much, is um, about the precipitous nature of your arrival. And so I just wanted to, first of all, really ring the bell for some compassion around midwives that rock into shit shows. <laughs> There's really no other way to say that. Um, I don't know if the client was coming to you or you were going to her. It wasn't clear to me if it was a birth center or a home birth, maybe a birth center. I, I can't remember. But either way, you guys first connected at, let's say 10 p.m., 9.59, whatever, 10 p.m., 13 minutes and with normal for initial vitals, normal history and a normal admission. 13 minutes later, her water breaks spontaneously with mech. And then 13 minutes, not even 12 minutes after that, we have a baby who is super brandicardic um, and had, there would have been no cervical exam yet. I mean, you were just checking her in. What do we do in the first 12 minutes of someone arriving in active labor? We, listen to heart tones, which you did, and you got a good normal baseline. And then we move into like equipment setup and comfort care and communication and like calling the rest of your team in. I mean, there's a lot that needs to happen in that first 30 minutes. And the moment you went back, 
per ACOG guidelines, listening Q30 and first stage is totally normal. And the moment you went back to listen, you had this really worrying response where a baby was not just having early D cells. They just did not come up even between contractions, babies in the seventies and eighties. That is alarming. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, and so I just wanted to just like ring the bell and part of this will never be solvable because precipitous labors happen. Travel is required in either direction. Lives communication is not always perfect. Um, birthing people don't know when exactly to call multips can be really fat. Like this might not ever be solvable. But I also want to say, did this experience make you think I need to be with people longer in labor? Was that ever, did that ever run through your head? Was that even possible in this situation? Um, I didn't really think about that in this case. She had had like early labor for a lot of the day, but she had just got into a regular pattern. Um, we -hmm. were meeting at a facility and there was traffic between both of us. So, um, that impacted part of the arrival. This was about as fast as it could be. This could, this was was about as fast as it could be. And then we went. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, yeah, that was, that seemed pretty fine and getting there earlier yeah we could have had a few more things set up or whatever but overall she was totally fine at arrival there wasn't well, I just wonder because we we only have we only have two data points right so uh, um, yeah you know if, in, I do in understanding fetal fetal monitoring I wonder if there was kind of ongoing issue happening I do think and it's not in the chart so I know then that if it's not in the chart it didn't happen I am pretty prompt though about listening right after rupture always. And so I think that we did start listening after rupture and we're trying to, I think maybe we listened for 12 minutes and that's when that charting is recorded. Um, Trying to flop from side to side and try different things like that. Um, Or I can't remember when the main charter arrived on the scene actually. Me and the main assistant were there from the beginning. And I think we were doing everything in that 13 minutes may have been when she arrived. Um, right, right. So well, so um, two, two minutes after yeah. hearing this, you called 911 and the baby was visible at the introitist one minute later and born um, five minutes from hearing this brandicardic situation, which is undoubtedly why this situation turned out as well as it did. I mean, your skill for sure, but one of your skills was this forced pushing to get that baby born. And this is the last piece of the puzzle that I feel like I really wanted to talk about was like how incredibly proactive and smart it was to rush this delivery and with a woman who was just admitted with mech in the water it could be very tempting to just transport yeah I mean we did call basically well I gave her that two minutes to try to push because I was like also we have a multip if we can just push this baby out it's complete right it's complete yeah Yeah, Yeah, multip that's complete um then 
but I, it was trying to like toe that line between if this baby comes out right now, we're fine. If not, I want to have EMS on the way. And honestly, it happened basically how I thought it would, that by the time they got there, baby was out, but I didn't want to count. Yeah, because she's a multip. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that's brilliant too. I mean, this is another example of how you handled this case so beautifully, which is why we wanted to talk about it. Um, but if this had say been a primate, um, probably not experimenting, pushing, probably transporting in the chest or something would be the right. solution. Would you agree? Chest, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And oh, I had a thought and now I lost it. Yeah, we did. We tried McRoberts first for pushing and then we got her into a squat, you know, trying those. Oh yeah. Generally like coach pushing isn't a huge thing that I want to do. But in this case, it was like, this is different. We're not. And even in coached pushing, she had such good pushing effort. You never hear us counting. We never do the like count to 10 or any of that kind of stuff. It's still like with her breathing rhythm and all of that. But she's giving a lot of effort on that. Um, oh, the other thing is you commented like when it goes from student to me, that's, I'm big on not taking over from students unless it's really necessary. But in that case, student looked at me and said, you, and okay, I'm, you know, there've been births yep. I've been out with her where everybody was good until this point. And I looked at her, I looked back at her and said, I'm here, but you have it, you know? So I think that's important to, to toe that line of training the next generation so that when she's in the room and alone, well, not alone, hopefully she has an assistant, but when she's the most senior person in the room, she's ready to handle it. But also there are situations where if the pre, if my preceptor that trained me had been in that room, it would have been like, you got 30 years, take it, yeah. you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Those scary moments. Definitely. We do lean into those layers of support that we've created. And that's of course, why we work in a team. Um, and that's, that's so important. Well, I, I hear you that there, this could not have happened any faster than it did. It's very likely that that heart uh, D cells or that, that brandycardia was due to the SROM and sudden cord compression where there maybe had not been throughout the labor another baby, another maybe bell that rings for, for not a roaming people early labor and all those other important things that we talk about in midwifery. So, um, so well done, really incredibly well done for you and your team. Um, and you're still in communication with the family. They have allowed you to share this audio, um, and are happy that you're helping to educate others and, and, and pass on this, this learning. Um, and they're just gonna have to see about these neurological delays that may be happening. His scans all came back normal. Um, everything in the hospital was normal. I don't remember what all things they did. So yeah, he's yeah, okay, he's good. Doing well. well, hopefully he is just on his own trajectory and not impacted by this experience, right? Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, do you have any suggestions for midwives, especially from your trauma-informed approach for when things don't have a great outcome, like this one seems to have, or when they don't have a great reception by EMS or the hospital, or when they go in peer review and their colleagues are criticizing them? Like, how do people deal with the layers of trauma in this job? What, what do, what's your biggest recommendation? Um, I think trying to find those 
people who will support you, the mentor, even if they're far away, you know, if you can go to conferences and build those relationships, because like we said, having a therapist to process things is wonderful, but also having other midwives that will sit there with you and be like, you know, shit happens, learn from it. I mean, there are takeaways that I learned from this, even in like a very smooth one. One is my pole socks. I don't like to put the sticky thing on it because those are one use and then you have to throw it away and then you wasted a $15 thing. Well, now I attach it every birth because at this one I had enough hands. And so I had to hold, I was holding the pole socks on the entire resuscitation because I didn't have the sticky one uh -huh. on. Now I attach it, uh -huh. leave it stuck to the other thing. And when everything's perfect and I didn't use it, I switch it back to my reusable probe to do my postpartum thing normally. Um, so there are pieces like that, that I think it's important to pick up, but also to take in a non-judgmental way. Like that didn't impact this birth, but it would have been really handy had I not been worried about the environment. That's right. That's a great takeaway. So, That's a great takeaway. We just have we the have right team prep your stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We do need the support. Definitely. That's a huge part of it. Yeah. Well, uh, Melody, thank you so much. This has been um, vulnerable and courageous and illuminating, very educational. Um, and uh, I just, I really appreciate your commitment to com our community and sharing sharing the, the wisdom. Thanks for joining Midwifery Wisdom. Thank you. Thank you for having me.